0: Welcome to the Final Draft podcast. My name's Andrew Popel. Today, I am joined on the podcast by Chris Womersley. Now, the Final Draft podcast is all about books, writing, and literary culture. Final Draft broadcasts every week from the studios of 2SER in Sydney. And here at Final Draft, we are dedicated to exploring Australian writing, be it debut authors to established classics. I'm speaking to an absolute classic author today. Each of these conversations is a way to look at the issues that drive the author's storytelling, help you discover more from the books you love, because these are the stories that make us who we are. I'd like to begin, I want to acknowledge that 2 SER broadcast from the lands of the Gadigal people. I'm recording on the lands of the Darug and the Gunungurra people. I want to acknowledge the traditional owners of those lands and pay my respects to their ongoing connection to their lands, acknowledging that these are unceded lands and treaty has never been made with Australia's First Nations. Chris Wormersley is a great friend of this show. Chris and I have had many a chat over the years and I always look forward to a new release of his. Today we are discussing Ordinary Gods and Monsters. It is his latest novel. It is a fantastic trip back to youth, trip back to the 80s and a really extraordinary look, I guess, at the way we narrativise our youth and what it means to kind of travel through that period of youth into becoming an adult I'm really looking forward to sharing this conversation. I always love a chat with Chris, so please join me as we discover Chris Womersley's Ordinary Gods and Monsters. Chris Womersley is the award-winning author of four novels, including Cairo, The Diplomat, and City of Crows. He joins us today with his new novel. It is called Ordinary Gods and Monsters. I've confessed to him off-air that it is one of my favourites of his. Welcome, Chris.
1: Thank you very much, Andrew. Thanks for hanging me on again.
0: This is, I, I had so much fun with it. Mm. Uh, you take us to, it's summer. It's the end mm-hmm. of high school. There's family dysfunction. Nick's life has shifted into some sort of liminal zone. And when his best friend, Marion's father, is killed in a hit and run, Nick wants to be there for her. But a series of spooky actions seem to indicate that the best way to support Marion is to track down her father's killer. That's that's a launching off point. There is so much more to this, um, and I cannot wait to talk about it. But I want to talk about meaning, and I want to get something out of the way from the outset. Please,
1: mm-hmm. okay. Uh, should I be scared?
0: Ah, uh, well, I'm 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 actually about to quote you, so I don't know how scared that might make you. <laughs> there's a scene towards the middle of the novel where your hero nick he is trying to convince a drug dealer to do a seance and while this negotiation occurs they're also discussing meaning in literature and there's the following exchange is it design or accident she suggested is that what you're getting at yes i said this is nick more or less how do these things come together we'll never know for sure what the author intended. Just ask the prick, said Arjun, shaking his head. So, Chris, I ask you, is this what's happening here? Am I... Am I ju- I'm not going to th- call you that, but am I just asking you?
1: Um, yeah, no, that, I mean, that, that sort of exchange is right. Like and Nick has obviously sort of just finished a, his HSC and, and, you know, been required to study a number of kind of classic texts and find meaning in them and so forth. And he's... Um, i guess in terms of the meaning or themes of novels i do think that the it's not that the novelist is not in charge of them i mean i don't you know Nabokov kind of famously said that you know my characters are are galley slaves they just do what i tell them to do effectively um uh but certainly i think um in my own experiences when writing five six seven books now that it's often only after you've written the book and it's the dust has settled that you yourself are aware of some of the thematic things involved mm. in the book. And I, I do think that the kind of, in a way, you know, in that exchange between Nick and, um, and Becky and Stretch, you know, sort of talking about how to sort of divine the meaning in a text, I guess um, loosely speaking, the, the, the author's, not the God necessarily, or the author is the God of it, but it's up to the reader to kind of to, to determine the meaning. Um, certainly, it's only in the wake of the publication of ordinary gods and monsters. and in talking about it have I did I even kind of really realize the sort of equivalence, I guess, between a state of adolescence and um the physical sight of suburbia as being kind of in slightly in between spaces, I guess, you know, suburbia being between the city and the country uh, and adolescence being between sort of childhood and adulthood, I guess. So sort of at the time I had no, uh, there was no kind of overall design I didn't sit down and think to myself, well, if I'm going to write a story about a bunch of 17-year-olds, where better to set it than in suburbia, which is also a kind of a liminal space. Um, And it's only kind of subsequent to that. So I think there is something in the sense that often motifs and um, themes and and character traits, if you like, of of books that you yourself write are only apparent once they're written. Mm.
0: I've often in sort of 10 years of doing this i've i've always vacillated between the enormous fun and privilege of sitting down mm-hmm. and and chatting to authors of books that i've just loved and then real, realizing that you know something that i've taken away may may not have been there and it's it's a very much a process of saying it's okay that the writer didn't sit down with it and in fact most writers will tell me that um their goal was not to be didactic their goal was not to uh you know hammer home any point and that i had to glory in the fact that i had found this in the work regardless Mm. and of course nick doesn't have the privilege of speaking to um to to many of the authors that he is um Yes, he is. He is. Uh, he's very fascinated with literature throughout the book. But um, I really, I enjoyed that that quote so much. Just, just Arjun's jumping in there with just ask. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, like you can ask Emily Bronte what she was talking about when it comes down to Wuthering Heights and, you know, what the kind of the the meaning of the Moors um, the, the, the are and stuff in terms of the kind of overall themes of the text, I guess.
0: Well, you very specifically have um, Nick talk about the Moors mm. as being that liminal space, that sort mm. of pathway between. Did you, did, I, I, again, you sort of talked about before the, the realisation after of what the suburbs role is. Did you have the suburbs and the moors as parallels in any way?
1: Uh, a little, you know, a little bit in that instance, I suppose, but it was sort of, it was, none of those kind of thematic things were sort of preordained. Like, you know, this is a book, weirdly, that I wrote in very short amount of time, and it all just sort of unspooled from me. And a lot of it is, you know, based on sort of autobiographical features from my own life. You know, I did study Wuthering Heights in, in the mid-'80s at HSC and Waiting for Godot and Oedipus and stuff. And, um, you know, Wuthering Heights in particular made them big big impression on me um in terms of you know that sort of the, the gothic nature of it and uh, it's sort of drama and you know there's still kind of certain lines i remember about you know sort of cathy quoting saying how the, her love for linton was like the um, ever-changing surface of the earth whereby her love for heathcliff was like the rocks beneath it for example and things like that so it sort of made a massive impression on me and as i was writing that particular scene it Enabled me to, um, I guess, put in Nick's mouth a little bit ideas about meaning and texts that I feel to be true, which is a, you know, a sort of a book comes alive in the heart of the reader as much as anything else. Um, and also, I guess there is a reflection in that sense of um, the moors being a liminal space between class and and time and all this kind of stuff, and 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 the suburbs kind of being a sort of. Re- Tamed reflection of that as well.
0: I want to, I want to explore that then. I think, um, gorgeously we've exploded several of my questions that, um, (laughs) you've, you've touched on there, but I was really interested because Nick also, Nick got me feeling quite introspective. It was Mm. perhaps because I studied literature at high school, um, and a lot of the books were the same. Thank you, board of studies. Um, they'll change them eventually. Um, I also worked at uh, a particular fast food chain. Um, I oh, also yeah. spent a lot of time wondering about uh, my possible future at uni. You talked a little bit about autobiographical um, elements yourself. Mm. Was there? Were you able to scrutinise these? Was there a wistfulness to it? Like how? How do you draw on that, but then also fictionalise it?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. I think certainly it depends on from writer to writer. Like I'm not a I'm not a fan of the hot take, I guess, you know that kind of sense of writing a, sort of an autobiographical or memoir um, 2 years after something's happened. Certainly for me, it um, in terms of kind of autobiographical elements infiltrate my work and have done sort of for my entire sort of writing life, but often often it takes decades for them to percolate into something that is usable as fiction. You know, I think it's, there's a vast, vast gulf between um, the fact that something really did happen in inverted commas and it being of interest fictionally to anyone else, you know um, certainly. And I'm not, you know, I have, certain events in my life or certain incidents or conversations that I've overheard that I've kind of mentally or physically made a note of um, that I haven't used in my fiction for literally decades. Um, Certainly in The Diplomat, you know, there was an instance of um, Edward – making a drug deal at a um a, a seedy motel in in melbourne suburb of st kilda while there's a dungeons and dragons convention going on and i actually went to a dungeons and dragons convention in that motel in about 1983 and i for all those decades subsequent i thought geez that's a good setup for a book somewhere in there uh with a diplomat i was finally kind of able to deploy it um And certainly, that's true as well of ordinary gods and monsters, in the sense that um, although the sort of the plot as such is fictionalized, in the sense of you know the neighbor, the narrator's neighbor's father being killed in an accident that may have more kind of sinister implications. um, A lot of the background texture, if you like, of the book is quite autobiographical in terms of the sort of the family life and the home life. And, you know, my parents split up when I was about 15 and, you know, I have a sister who has some sort of behavioral issues and she kind of appears as a character in ordinary gods Mm -hmm. and monsters as well. So it's sort of, you know, and all that stuff is 40 years ago for me. Mm. So it takes, it's a matter of it taking time for me to be able to kind of, Manipulated in a way that is suitable and useful for fiction, while also being able to maintain a degree of um, truth, I guess, to it. There are sort of an emotional truth or a spiritual truth that can hopefully carry through to the reader, I guess. Um, so, yeah, it's a. And but again, I think it's sort of different for for all writers, you know. And I've certainly um, taught a little bit of writing myself, and you know, your, people will write something and you will say to them look this doesn't really ring true the way you have the sequence of events here or whatever and they'll say but that's really what happened and it's like well that's not good enough Mm. frankly (laughs) like if for it to be interesting as fiction or a narrative for somebody else to read other than you know yourself which is also a fine kind of motivation um you need to be able to turn that sort of base metal of Experience into something that's um, hopefully fictionally more interesting and uh, valuable. I think. Mm.
0: I um, I I now want to ask a little bit about Nick and introspection, and I mm. I'm conscious that I'm following on a, a a response there where you gave me some some marvelous introspection. I'm also very tempted to cut short your anecdote in the audio there, so that people are left wondering: Was Chris? at the Dungeons and Dragons convention, or was he doing that? No, but that's <laughs> that's just well, I'll leave that
1: up to uh, readers to decide. Just
0: cheeky, yes. But Nick is – one of the wonderful things about Nick is his introspection, and I think mm. he's recognisable to the reader as a good person, even by our constantly evolving standards of what that might be, simply for his ability to stop and to think. It occurs to me that Tom Button was also 17. He was also someone who, so Tom Button from Kyra. Mm. Um, I wondered what drew you to imagine these these good, but I, I'm, I'm going to use the word naive protagonists, these people that are, I guess, discovering their world.
1: Yeah, I don't know. I mean, in, in some ways I find that hard to answer because, I'm, I mean, I've always been drawn to that kind of realm of adolescence in a way. You know, my short fiction as well as I've sort of, Probably more so kind of dealt with that kind of, again, liminal space, I guess. And I I guess what I enjoy about it is there is a sense of um, the reader being able to determine what's happening, being slightly wiser than the narrator or the protagonist of events, which sort of comes with a sort of an inbuilt tension, I think, because, of course, you know, the reader can kind of see that somebody may be getting in over their head, but they're not able to kind of, but the narrator or the protagonist is unable to kind of see those things. So I guess it's, um, and there's a sense of certainly in Ordinary Gods and Monsters, and there's an equivalence, I think, there with the uncanny, with other worlds, you know, that idea that um, as a 17-year-old, as an adolescent, you are becoming aware of certain things about the world and your neighborhood and your family that have potentially been hidden from you. You know, as parents, we all kind of hide things from our children a fair bit that we don't feel that they're ready for. They don't really want to understand it because, you know, there comes a certain point where you lose control over that. Mm. Uh, and, And I just sort of find that interesting, that sense of, um being youngish or a teenager or an adolescent and becoming aware dimly of what the adults are up to and mm. what the adults are up to is not always, um, necessarily pleasing or in your best interest, I guess. So there's a sense of, um, I guess, kind of coming looping back to those ideas of the uncanny, that kind of sense of, um, a growing discomfort in a an environment which, has otherwise been entirely comfortable and homely for mm. you.
0: Yeah. Let's pick up in a sec on that sense of the uncanny, in, uh, particularly in space. But I, I like that you talked about tension there and we've talked about the suburbs being a liminal space, but I guess there is a, a flip of that where the suburbs is perhaps a completely ordinary space i'm sure there are probably mm. some people listening saying the suburbs are not they are completely ordinary andrew chris please please mm. and it's in fact nick that is occupying a liminal zone where he is he is working his way through but just to just to come to that sense of space and place in the novel and i don't like to lean too much into clichés Nick's suburban home in all its glory felt a little like a character in the novel. And sorry, cliche Mm. number one. And there was a sense for me that the whole book felt perhaps like a love letter to the suburbs. Sorry, cliche number two. Or if not a love letter, maybe a breakup letter.
1: (laughs) Yeah, look, it's a funny one because, you know, like... um like uh, a lot of inner-city latte-sipping um, wankers, such as myself, I you know, who left the suburbs at age fifteen. Uh, I, I have a sort of complicated relationship with it. In for a long time, I kind of really disliked suburbia and kind of saw it all that was saw about it all that was sort of mediocre, I guess about. A, 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 modern life to an extent but you know perhaps like a salmon returning to the pond where he was spawned you know i have a sort of a growing sort of fondness for the suburbia and i think um also you know definitely growing up in suburbia as most of us probably do there's a degree of and you know particularly you know 20 30 40 years ago there was a sense of kind of freedom of movement there um that uh maybe you don't have if you grow up in an inner city environment i mean you know i think with this book um although i did write it relatively quickly that's also slightly kind of misleading because it had been an idea that i'd had sitting in my computer for a number of years and i had the idea that had been sitting in my computer was that of Quite young, much younger kids trying to solve a crime, um, and you know, maybe 12 years old. And I hadn't gotten very far with the story at all. And then when I started to write it as from the point of view of a, a narrator, Nick, who's 17, the story sort of took off. And you know, one of the great things about being 17 is you as opposed to being 12 is you have mm. uh agency mm. you know you can suddenly move around the environment um in a way that obviously a young much younger person is unable to do uh, so you have a degree of freedom but at the same time you can still move slightly unnoticed mm. like people don't kind of give you maybe enough credit you know i feel like we've all probably experienced that kind of thing when you're a teenager or an adolescent and you know what's going on in the house or the house next door, but everyone thinks you don't know because you're too young and innocent and you haven't kind of picked up on it. But so there's a degree of invisibility, I think when you're 16, 17 mm. that um, you kind of inevitably lose as soon as you become slightly older. Mm.
0: Mm. I like, we we do need to, we do need to get a little bit to the action. Um, and you've reminded me of that there. Um, uh, but I want to again just uh, just to sort of close out this idea of the suburbs. Nick describes mm. it as as that land of ordinary gods and monsters that the, the the title comes from. And again, Arjun, who was such a he was a brief but fascinating character, who also gave us that wonderful insight when he talks about his I think it was his grandmother's warning that should he ever meet a god mm. on earth and and how he is to behave. Mm. Um, and I wondered, I was really curious about this sense of. The way mythology overlays the action of the novel, mm. the way the ordinary gods and monsters are, um, are I, I guess, yeah, sort of elevated.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's certainly kind of Nick's um, narration, and there's a you know little sequence where he talks about all the people in the suburb, and uh, you know, and it's a bit of a kind of a. Um, you know, Dylan Thomas moment in a, in, a, in a sense of kind of an overview of the suburb and these ordinary people who are sort of at the same time kind of benevolent but also potentially malign, I guess. Uh, so I always liked um, I always like the mythological in fiction, an element of kind of things reaching towards something that is um, kind of ineffable, I guess. Mm-hmm. You know, I have actually... Um, Robert Colasso's book, um, Literature and the Gods, sitting kind of in the, I've been reading kind of recently. And, you know, he sort of talks about that idea of kind of humans being at the beck and call of myth rather than uh, humans being the devisers of myth. Like, you know, I guess there's an idea of the spiritual, the ineffable beyond everything. Uh, you know, I'm a big fan of um, American writer John Cheever. Who was, you know, wrote a lot in the 50s and 60s and 70s, you know, was a sort of a quintessential, in a way, New Yorker writer of short fiction, mostly set in suburbia. And, um, but you know, Cheever kind of introduces amidst all of his sort of, um, unhappy marriages and, and people who commute and drink too much and, and this kind of stuff, there's an element of, um, of the mythological in some of his work, you know, uh, the famous book, uh, you know, famous story, the swimmer is something, um, about, you know, a guy who decides to swim across his suburb and he sort of somehow slips back and forward in time as he kind of moves through the sort of, this sort of very kind of upper middle-class suburbia. And I sort of always liked the way Cheever was able to, um, introduce elements of something mystical in a very everyday kind of landscape mm-hmm. um so i guess that's somewhat i was sort of trying to do here necessarily but it's something that kind of emerged i guess and and and, and i guess that's um it's sort of accented by the fact that nick is not totally aware of what's happening around him you know of what the adults are doing he finds himself in a little over his head, for example, so I guess there's a sort of an element there of mystery and that's sort of probably at the heart of um, mythological elements, isn't it I mm. think.
0: Does the mythology then or the mythologizing bring with it a sense of inevitability? Um, <clears throat> there has been a, there has been an event and like it or not, Nick finds himself inevitably dragged into supporting it because there is a girl. And mm. Nick, um, you know, Nick's got a crush on Marion, but he, mm. he finds, um, you know, it almost inevitable that he would support her. Does I'm not suggesting that stories have to be inevitable, but does Nick's faith in them make a lot of things inevitable for him? Mm.
1: No, that's a good question. I hadn't kind of thought about that before. Like, I guess what you're talking about here is sort of notions of tragedy and stuff, isn't it? You know, uh, and again, you know, Oedipus is kind of referenced at one point uh, along not along the lines of the kind of explicit plot points of Oedipus, but that idea of um, fate, you know what I mean? And, you know, one of, I guess one of the undercurrents of ordinary gods and monsters is, um, you know, Nick's parents have separated and Nick, desires not to be like his father, who's a sort of a rather unpredictable and occasionally violent sort of character. And um, at one point he has an interaction with a sort of an older man who sort of says, you know, you don't have to, when they're talking about Oedipus, he says, you know, you don't have to kill Laos at the crossroads, you know, and set all these actions into motion. You do have some kind of choice, although, although your destiny or your character is a little bit like a tide, you know, your genealogical inheritance is a little bit like a tide that's very hard to resist. You can resist it, I guess. Um, so I guess there is a maybe Nick's love of story um, does somehow predispose him to wanting to act in a way that may be heroic, in inverted commas, I suppose, you know? Um, yeah. And it
0: just, it, it also, I'd, I'd made a note to myself about some of those literary role models. I was particularly interested the way um, Nick is drawn to Heathcliff um, mm. because I i was fascinated for years. I would have, I would have described Wuthering Heights as one of my favourite novels, but mm. as I've gotten older, I, I just, I find Heathcliff very hard to take, like. To the, to the point I struggled to find anything um, redeeming about him. But many of these literary role models, though, I wondered whether they were standing in for actual fathers, at least for Nick, um, or father figures in the novel, because the the men are, uh, with a few exceptions, not terribly inspiring.
1: <laughs> in the novel, yeah, yeah, that's true, I guess. like, And I hadn't thought about that in terms of kind of standing in for role models, and certainly Heathcliff is not one uh, that anyone would kind of really wish to model themselves on, although weirdly he's become this sort of... Um, icon of brooding kind of masculinity and and, and you know sort of attractive you in know in, in a way i guess but heathcliff's a complete brute you know mm. um which is sort of part of the tension i guess of, of wuthering heights isn't it they sort of you know i mean kathy's no angel herself either is, is she so it's a sort of an you know it's why it's such an interesting and enduring novel because people aren't kind of the characters aren't simple and they're not simplified but I guess that could be a reason for Nick's um, interest in some of these literary figures. I mean, you know, he's, the, the literary role models he mentions are hardly kind of inspiring. We have Oedipus, we have Heathcliff, we have uh, the the two characters waiting for Godot, for example. Um, I'm not sure I'd want to be any of them these days, to be <laughs> honest. But, you know, he's also 17, so he has a kind of a naive sort of view. And I guess when he references... Heathcliff, you know, at one point he sort of says, you know, um, if I were to be bereaved in the way that Marion is, then I'd become far more, you know, I could be brooding and attractive and and sort of be loved in the way that, you know, I love her effectively.
0: Mm, Yeah. And uh, perhaps a, a mirror, a flip, or at least a corollary of this idea of literary inevitability that the story kind of will out, it will play itself, is the idea of spooky action at a distance, which was just delightfully threaded through the novel. Mm. Would you care to elaborate at all on the quantum connection? Like, this was just...
1: (laughs) Well, yeah, spooky action at a distance is a term given by Einstein to this idea of quantum entanglement, which, look, I'm no scientist and I'm no quantum physicist, but it's something to do with... um, protons reacting against each other regardless of the distance that may lay between them, even if the distance is sort of many, many millions of light years. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah, certainly in the novel, the characters who talk about this idea of quantum entanglement, namely Stretch, who's a bit of a sort of buffoonish um, suburban stoner, his sort of idea about quantum entanglement is that everything is kind of connected, and I think that's probably a simplification of an incredibly difficult um, uh, problem in physics, I guess. But, you know, this idea that sort of presents itself certainly in the novel and in sort of a naive way is that there's a sort of a connection between things, um, and it sort of goes to Nick's desire and eagerness to try and solve the Mm mystery of um bill perry's death because he sort of feels like every he he starts to get a sense that everything is connected in a way although he's unable to kind of put these pieces together he has various pieces of information you know a clue from a seance for example and uh meeting a guide you know sort of a biker down at his um panel beating workshop and the guy he meets at the wake uh, and he sort of feels like all these things are connected if only he knew how he could thread them together and that would sort of solve not only I guess the mystery of um, Bill Perry's death but make him feel better about perhaps his position in the world because he's sort of a little bit rudderless I mean you know that's the point of I mean as human beings we're kind of narrative creatures aren't we like we sort of we narrate our own lives and we narrate the story of our own day all the time a little Mm. bit i think or maybe that's just me i don't know but you know you come home and you talk to your housemates or your partner or husband or whatever and how was your day oh this happened and that happened because that happened you know um so we're constantly sort of refining and um and um seeking to somehow explain our place Mm. in a world that is otherwise potentially probably completely chaotic. Mm.
0: I was recently um, in a situation, put in a situation where I was able to kind of sit almost neutral and observe a set of events and then hear them told from different perspectives. Mm. And I was was struck how if these stories were de-identified and just presented, you would struggle to find them being in any way connected and yet for for these individuals they could somehow make make this completely disparate meaning from the same event and it, it that that came up in my brain as you were talking there because we are meaning makers and whether mm. it's whether it's through stories and mythology or through quantum entanglement we will try to overlay something that makes meaning and i i think i want to ask just the most obtuse question of you Chris, to, to sort of maybe draw nice. maybe draw this to a close because as we try to make meaning, as we struggle to connect elements of our life like a mysterious red bicycle appearing everywhere we go, mm-hmm. it never once perhaps occurs to us that someone could shatter that just by taking the wheels off and repainting it. Is yeah. that real? Did you ever repaint your bicycle as a young man?
1: I did actually. I did actually. I remember sort of, um, and you know, the sequence in the book where he sort of decides to kind of paint his bike because he's, you know, um, Nick is afraid of being in sort of one of the villains recognizing it. Um, And I, you know, like Nick, I was sort of, I'm uh, sort of terribly incompetent when it comes to doing sort of the most basic practical things. And I did have an experience where I started to paint my bike and, without realising that you're meant to sand it back first and all this kind of stuff, I just thought, oh, well, you just get some spray paint and kind of spray over the top of the frame or whatever and stuff. So, um, yeah, there is, you know, there's certainly an element of um, trying to disrupt, certainly for Nick of trying to sort of disrupt what he feels like is perhaps the inevitable flow of events. Uh.
0: Gorgeous, gorgeous. Because I can't talk about. I can. I can assure the reader, sorry, the listener, that the story will out, but we can't talk about the resolution. We can't discuss the <laughs> fabulous, um, the fabulous tense scene um, that is that that leads to it. But I, I can um, satisfy my own questions. Mm-hmm. I can, again, coming back to the very beginning, I can just ask the. Fabulous Chris Womersley, who has joined me today on Final Draft. (laughs) That's been, what a fabulous conversation, Chris. I mean, there is so much more I think we could probably get into, but I'm just going to let people know again. I am discussing Ordinary Gods and Monsters. Chris Womersley has joined me. There are so many chats with Chris up on the Final Draft podcast. Hunt them down if you are enjoying his books and go and get yourself a copy of Ordinary Gods and Monsters and uh, take a listen again to this one. Thank you so much, Chris. Hey, thank you, Andrew. It's been great. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. Today on the show, Chris Womersley joined me with Ordinary Gods and Monsters. Always a pleasure to speak with Chris. I um, I acknowledged at the end there that there are many... Con- I have had many conversations with Chris, but I realise none of them are on the podcast. What an oversight. It is one of the vagaries of audio and podcasting. I've been doing this for 10 years, but of course, the podcast has not existed that long. Please rely on me to get at least some of those conversations up for you to discover. Final Draft is recorded on the lands of the Darug and the Gunungurra people. The show is produced and presented by Andrew Popel. Stay in touch if you are enjoying the show. Look, I don't use social media as much as I used to. It's um it's a bit of a bin fire, but if you were to message me, I would totally reply to you. You can also email us Finaldraft at two dot com or wherever you are listening to this podcast, leave us a review. Throw a few stars our way. You don't need to talk to me. Talk to the other people who would like to discover this podcast by rating it. I am Andrew Popel. I will be back with more books next week. Until then, happy reading. Bye for now.